We're back. Welcome back to the Boxing One podcast. Wow. We took a little bit of a hiatus, but for those of you who are new listeners, we want to just give you an overview of who we are. We're the Boxing One podcast. We're we're very passionate about three topics, Christ, sports, and culture. And you'll hear that in our podcast episodes here on out moving forward. Those are things that we're going to cover, uh, topics that are going to be hot topics week to week. And we pray that they not only entertain you, but also challenge you um, and allow you to see Christ in, um, in some of these things that are cultural icons or cultural references. So that's what the Boxing One podcast is all about. We want to take these topics and unpack them with a gospel-centered lens and see what we can see through the lens of the cross. I'm joined today by my co-host, Chris Lassiter. What's up, C-Lass? Hey, what up? It's good to be back, bro. Yes, sir. And we got to give a shout out to the homie, Jeremy Hartman, Jay Hart, who is not joining us. And uh, he was with us on the first leg of the journey. And he certainly contributed a great ton of content we love this insight, loved everything that Coach Hartman uh, did for us, but he will not be joining us on this leg of the journey, but we're grateful for that, brother, and um, all that he's done for us and, and said about the topics that we've covered. Any shout-outs for Jay Hart, Chris? Of course, man. That's my homie. So um, we've been together for decades at this point. We were teammates, and I came with a dream, and I asked you guys, hey, Let's see what we can do here. And I'm just thankful um, that he took me up on that. And we had a great first leg of that journey. I know he has lots of things he's passionate about pursuing. And I wish him well in every single one of those things. And um, I'm excited that we get a chance to keep going and that he'll pursue uh, things that he's passionate about as well. Yeah, sure thing, man. So shout out to Jay Hart, one of the biggest Lakers fans I know. I'm going to miss that about our banter back and forth, especially since my Spurs are doing quite well and his Lakers are in the doldrums. But we're not going to be talking about NBA basketball on this episode. What we are going to talk about is the most wonderful time of the year no i'm not talking about christmas what are we talking about chris march madness the madness man march madness is back and it's in full effect and i call it the most wonderful time of the year march has to be one of the best times of the year right for sports absolutely fans. man like it's just those first two days of the tournament are just magical they're probably my favorite two sports days of the year and i'm excited for them to get kicked off this year too yeah so as we're recording this they are playing in the first four so the tournament has not started in earnest yet per se so what we're gonna do for this episode is go through some quick fire questions between the both of us neither of us know each other's answers um about the tournament and i want to see what c Lass has to say c Lass, what's your favorite NCAA moment, man. Easy. 2002, Maryland wins the national championship. Juan Dixon is the Final Four MVP, and it's because I played with Juan's brother, Phil, in college, and um, 
he had a little brother named Juan who we went to go pl watch play um, in high school in Baltimore. Uh, he was like a twig, but he was amazing. Um, and then to watch one of my teammates watch his little brother win a national championship and then get selected by the Wizards was pretty amazing. That's great, man. That personal connection there definitely gives you something to cheer for there. And you're going to like mine. I'm going with March 2008 and the improbable run of a small school called Davidson. 1,600 people in the town, I think. Young Chef Curry coming into his own in the NCAA tournament and almost pulling off uh, a great game against the Zags of Gonzaga. Uh, they made it all the way to the Elite Eight, I think, with that squad. It was just him and everybody else. But he was doing exactly what he's doing in the league now, pulling up and making amazing shots. It was sort of a coming out party for him. Cameras kept showing his family, but Chef Curry definitely came out in March 2008. This is where you insert reference to Dale Curry. But listen, man, my homeboy, Tyler, uh, he was a shooting guard on the Georgetown team that was the two seed when Davidson was the 10 seed and it ended his career. And I don't know if you remember, but Georgetown was up like 15. They were. And that's kind of when the legend of uh, Steph kind of took place. He bought him back against Georgetown. I do. I live about 11 miles from where Dale Curry, a court is named after him. This is where he grew up. But that was bittersweet for us because Tyler was from Stanton. And that's like my hometown. So I could never cheer against him. And but it you was gotta... heartbreaking. That was just a heartbreaking way because the year before Georgetown, it went to the Final Four. So we were hoping they'd make another great run. But it was Steph's year. Yes, sir. Certainly was the year of Chef Curry. All right. Who was your breakout star of the tournament? If you had to pick one guy to say, this is my breakout star who could win the player of the tournament, who would it be? Breakout, right? Yes, sir. Like, kind of no one sees it coming? Nobody Give sees it Harry coming. Giles. He's been hurt all year. He's coming off the bench for Duke a lot of the time now, but he's amazing. He was projected to be the number one pick coming off the season. Amazing talent starting to play really well, and so it would not surprise me at all to see him be the Final Four MVP, and Duke actually win the whole thing. Wow. Okay, we're going to look for Giles in the tournament. You know who I'm going to go with, and I don't know if he's going to be a breakout star because he he's kind of playing pretty well, but I'm going with my man Deontay Burton from Iowa State. Did you see him uh, impale the West Virginia player in the championship game? It was great. He, yeah, bro. <laughs> West Virginia, that's Hartman's squad. And they're always a weird team because they match up, either match up great with you or not so well. And Iowa, Iowa State played so much offense that uh, West Virginia just couldn't, or press Virginia, as they like to call themselves, couldn't keep up. They they really couldn't. So I'm going to go with Burton, who's 6'4 with a 7-foot wingspan. All right, first round upsets. What do you think? All right, so I just did my bracket a few minutes ago. Wow. And a few minutes ago? <laughs> yes. This is going to be interesting then. Yeah, I just, I mean, I always have to pick against the teams that I'm passionate about because, so give me UNC Wilmington over Virginia because if I go ahead and pick that in my bracket, I won't be hurt if it really happens. At least my bracket will be in place. So give me that 12-5. Virginia's 1-3 in 5-12 matchups, and um, their offense has kind of stumbled 
into the tournament. They've played well on defense all year. They've been even ranked number one in the nation, but uh, give me that for the first round knockoff. Yeah, so I'm going to either go, you know what? I'm going with Rhode Island, man. And here's why I'm going with Rhode Island, okay? Anytime you can get seven or eight black dudes to come to Rhode Island to play basketball, you know they're going to have a good squad. And these boys have a good squad. And they're playing Creighton. And Creighton's one of those like mid-major type teams. And I think they're going to get them this year, man. So I'm going with that 6-11 upset in the South, Rhode Island beating Creighton. You don't remember when Rhode, uh, Lamar Odom used to play for Rhode Island? Yes, sir. I do. He was and wearing Stephon the baby Murray's blue. little brother, Zach. Something he, he, wasn't right. He was wearing that. Eric was blue. getting all them guys there. <laughs> so that, yeah, that's my podcast. first round upset for sure. All right, man, I got I to gotta go sleeper team to make the final four. You know, everybody pretty much goes chalk, or most people do. But if you had a sleeper team to make the final four, who would it be? That means someone outside of the ones and the twos and even the threes. Ooh. Now, when you said threes, you threw me off. I wasn't ready for that. Um, if somebody was going to make the run, and this is just because I think their story's amazing, and if anyone has listened to the podcast and knows my background, I was a journalist. Um, I don't know if you remember when Connecticut made that run all the way through the Big East tournament and then won the championship. The Michigan story just kind of feels like it could be that again where they get in a plane wreck play with their practice jerseys one day and then run through the big 10 tournament and are just hot playing really good basketball and i don't think anybody wants to be the team that sees michigan across from them on the court right now so give me michigan for the team that could make a surprise run through the tourney that's a great pick who's their kimba is it the point guard their point guard's been lights out i forgot his name but he's been lights yeah. out in the big 10 he, tournament and actually they won 10 of their last 12 so yeah that's a good comp that's a good comp for sure. I was thinking the same thing about, about them. So my sleeper team is going to be the same team I mentioned earlier is Iowa State, man. I like that team. And Monte Morris is a great point guard. I can't wait to see him next level. I think he leads the nation in assist-to-turnover ratio. And you know I love those types of point guards. I'm going to go at Iowa State, even, if, even though they have Kansas in their bracket. But they did go into Kansas's house and beat them. So... Uh, that wouldn't be too much of an upset there, but they're my sleeper team to make it to the final four. So what teams do you really actually have in your bracket in the final four? Duke, Kansas, Kentucky, and Arizona. I think that was my four that I went with. Okay. What about you? What you got? So I got Kansas, Villanova, Arizona, and North Carolina. And I got my boy, the future Spur, Josh Hart holding that trophy up at the end of the tournament from Villanova. Back to back, back to back. They're not who's good your, enough to go back to back, Jay Rich. Who's your champ? Uh, Duke. They just got the easiest pass. Oh, that's trash. Oh, I'm not a Duke fan, man. I'm not cheering for him. I'm just saying they got the easiest path. Through Nova, huh? Yep. Okay. We'll see, man. We'll see. This is going to be an exciting time. And we're going to post this before the tournament so that people know whether or not I'm Negro Domus or not. Okay. Because if all this goes wrong and goes south, you will not call me a prophet in the future. Okay. Now we got to talk about movies. One specific movie that's been generating a ton of buzz across the country. 
It's been number one at the box office. It's an interesting social commentary within the hot horror genre. And it has these interesting Black Lives Matter themes woven in it. But I think personally, and we're talking about Get Out, the movie Get Out. If you haven't heard about it, you're probably living under a rock. I think the most interesting social commentary is actually in the casting of the movie because the leads are a interracial dating couple um, who go home to see the family. It's sort of a guess who's coming to dinner for the horror uh, sci-fi crowd. And there's been a lot of folks talking about this. Isn't that right, C-Last? Yep, a whole lot. It's been everywhere. I've seen memes everywhere, blogs everywhere, just people talking about the movie and the uh, impact and uh, just the fear or the like, just emotional rawness that it's caused as they processed it. Yeah. And you and I have kind of been throwing some ideas back and forth. And I think the one thing that stands out to me, in full disclosure, neither one of us have actually seen it, but we do know the themes that are in it. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the interracial couple kind of bought, to my mind, uh, what happened 50 years ago. Uh, and this is in your great state, C-Lass, where it was actually illegal to marry outside of one's race in the state of Virginia until the great case of Loving versus Virginia, where this interracial couple were married in D.C., came back to Virginia, the cops bust in their house uh, and arrested them because they were violating the law. So, so, so one of the things that this interracial couple tells us at the beginning of the movie is that things probably aren't going to go well for this brother okay the horror genre is not kind to black people we had there's this running joke that we get killed in the first five minutes of the film uh but without giving too much away there are things that happen in the film that kind of bust out all those stereotypes while putting together this wonderful social commentary that's gotten people talking about um the role of blacks in our society and our culture so here's the thing we want to talk about from a Christocentric, gospel-centered church perspective. Because one of the things that I've noticed in the Western church is that there are other uh, quote-unquote interracial marriages that occur uh, within the body of Christ, and that's between pastor and congregation. And one of the things that we I've noticed is not as many African-American pastors pastor or lead a majority white con congregation, but more Caucasian pastors lead majority African-American congregations. So the question becomes, how has the church kind of responded to interracial marriages or responded to the race issue when we even have issues with our churches being led, at least on the um, subliminal level, led by African-American pastors. Do you know very many black pastors who lead white churches? I think I'm starting to see um, more or just an awareness of like the fact that some people would say like, hey, like I would never, like I've never even thought about the idea of sitting under um, black leadership. But I know I've heard Pastor Tony Evans down in Texas talk about um, 
more and more white people joining his church and initially they're being pushback from some of the black congregants and saying like they wanted to know if it was going to come in and be like a power trip where they came in kind of like with that colonial mindset of like hey here's the way we do things in our culture and it's better and people fearing that they would lose some of their distinctness and so i wonder like how much of that is a both sides you know like that i won't be heard and then um to be honest you just don't you still don't see the level of multicultural church that you would think we would see in 2017 like we would definitely acknowledge like hey the church is behind the culture on this one yeah and it's just tough to see because i think everybody recognizes it but nobody speaks too much about it because we're kind of comfortable in our homogenous situations what does a true multicultural church look like that's that's always i guess always the challenge and most of them are led by white white pastors as opposed to the other way around yeah so i do um i've i've been around campus ministry my whole life so one of the things every time i get a chance to speak to the campus ministry college students one of the things i beg them is saying like hey you're going to be the church of today and tomorrow like i know i'm speaking to future pastors in this room some of you guys will plant churches like if you want to see like this move forward so we're not behind the culture like please consider like planting with multicultural like dna you know what i'm saying like from the get-go like don't don't propel like another generation where we struggle to be um multicultural multi-ethnic um or just sometimes church plants can not include older people you know but the church in scripture and titus says like you need older people in your congregation everybody just can't be 26. um mm. but with that what you're saying is true too like hey if you're in inner city dc and everyone is like african-american like we're not gonna bust in white people and hold up like this idea that we have to be multi-ethnic if the place where you're at isn't you know what i'm saying like that's backwards too i'm not sure if we'll find a solution but um it's certainly something that even is playing out in in our films in our movies and even in the horror genre we saw that um that that they've they've covered this issue um in a genre that usually doesn't really cover it there's kind of this pa passing reference to or passing uh, casting of African-Americans, whereas in this particular film, uh, it was highlighted and it was something that was powerfully done so much so that people have been, um, have been talking about it for the past several weeks. Okay, so I have a problem or I had a problem that I was looking to solve. I, I worked at an African-American church and I was looking for a small group process that could work in the black church i've seen small groups work in other churches andy stanley they talk about circles being better than roles they have this entire curriculum that works for them but what about the black church so did some research looked at a couple of churches found one that was doing some great work in texas uh, concord church and then i thought historically wait We've been doing this for a long time. Sunday school has been around in the black church for a very long time. Those are small groups before small groups. 
I remember going to to small groups or Sunday school uh, back in the day, but Sunday school attendance is dwindling and it's definitely on the other side of being something that is viable. So a lot of black churches look are looking for ways to engage people in a small group context. So as I began to think about that and looking at ways in which Concord Church was doing it, I said, wait, I think CLAS has a small group story that is actually a success story. And I'd love to hear that, man, so so that listeners can know that, hey, this actually can work in that particular context. Well, first, you've written back-to-back blog posts that were both excellent that I would encourage everyone to check out. But also, when I was reading the blog post, I was hoping we could get you to maybe kick us a stanza or two of Onward Christian Soldier from your Sunday school day. So if you want to insert your uh, singing abilities right here, we do have a second. So Onward Christian Soldiers Marching us to war. Okay, that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, all right. So look, this is, I mean, this was pivotal in my like conversion. It's really what the Lord used. But this is going to, this is going to seem weird to you, right? Because I was in a small group. It wasn't all black, but it was mostly black. It was kind of multicultural, attached to any church. So some people went to church. But it was just a group of young adults who were all just like having this thing where like the Lord was moving and drawing and creating community. But I remember conversations in that group about like, hey, where are we all going to go to church? And this was something where like, um, I mean, we're all young Christians at this point. Right. So I'm not even sure it was the the healthiest model. But um, and at this point, I would have probably said like, hey, I'm just trying to figure out what all this stuff is about. But um. Like there wasn't really a home church. Like no one was pastoring over the small group. No one was making sure it was healthy. What we were teaching was doctrinally sound. These are all things I came across later. You know, even the passion for the local church was something I came across later. But I just remember the warmth, like being together in the home with it being people that I trusted. And I had grown up in the church, hadn't been to church in a few years in my college years. And I was playing basketball. And um, just other reasons, other factors, too. But just being ready to go to that small group every Wednesday night before I was ready to, like, return to church. And so that was pivotal to me. And it was such it was so foundational. Like, all those people are still really, really close to me. And we all stay in contact all the time, even though life has spread us out all over the place. Um, I'm talking about people that were in my marriage, uh, people who did our premarital counseling, people that... um, have been just significant people in our lives to this day. And that was like 16, 17 years ago at this point. Wow. That's great, man. That's great. And that's encouraging because, you know, a lot of churches are trying to figure out the small group thing. And as they continue to grow and impact people's lives beyond Sunday, um, they try to trying to figure out, okay, what does Monday through Friday look like? in terms of spiritual growth and development. And sometimes you can't really take models used at other church and just plop them down on your church and expect it to work. Contextualization is key. So uh, what we did is we created what we call life classes, which were actually uh, Christian education classes that operated as small groups at the church um, because they were used to coming to church. Um, So, 
uh, we had them in the building and each one of our leaders, executive team members, led up one of those classes. So they saw us doing it and they were like, wow, they're all in. So guess what? We're going to join the classes and we're going to fellowship with, together. So we had time before the class um, for some social time. And then we also, uh, within the class, tried to incorporate some smaller groups, circle type activities. Whereas on the other, other hand, you know, Andy Stanley's church, all their stuff happens outside of the church. Um, and Concord does the same thing. They meet in the larger group for a lesson and then they break down into smaller groups as well in some of their small groups. So again, context is key. Contextualization is key. Um, a lot of black folks like going to church. So sometimes you gotta do the small group thing in the church context. And then those groups may potentially do some in-home small groups after that. So, so that's, that's what we did. Yeah. Contextually too. I noticed like I live in the community that's right beside the, uh, old high school when it was segregated. Right. So in that, like, I know all of my neighbors, like everybody in this community is outside all the time. It's not like I just know my next door neighbors. Like I probably know like, like 85% of the people in a two block radius, like no matter which two blocks you go, you would say, Oh, that's that person's family. So there's already this interconnection that you talked about that doesn't have to be forced in our community. But, um, that's different now because I don't go to an African-American church. I go to a church where um, it's predominantly Caucasian. It's a PCA church. Um, and so small group looks a lot different. And in those, like I'll go over someone's house, but not everybody might not know their neighbor in that community. Like I would know in mine. So yeah. Dynamics you brought up in the blogs. And we'll link to those in the show notes. As, as we move forward in the podcast, we definitely, um, are restructuring a little bit, but one thing that I always look forward to is making sure people had good resources kind of point them forward to things that'll help them grow in Christ or just um, engage if they're saying like oh I don't know where I am what's the next step uh, what do you got for us this week as far as a, a great resource something that's either been encouraging you or something you would just highly recommend you know uh, something that really has been encouraging me is a curriculum program for my son and it's the uh, gospel project my boss worked on it. He, he was the, the editor for that project, but it takes these students or kids through the entire redemptive arc of scripture. Um, and it does it through a three-year program. So they started in Genesis in October and they're um, around the Leviticus area now where things are getting a little bit interesting. But there's always a gospel-centered takeaway message. And every time my son comes home, he's always telling me, hey, we talked about you know Moses and the disobedient children of Israel. I just can't wait until he gets to Revelation because he's walked through that entire program. So I would commend that curriculum to any parent who's raising a kid. They send take-home take out, um, outlines and uh, discussion questions home with them. So... Uh, the Gospel Project for kids. They also have an adult curriculum if you want to do it in a small group. So I would definitely commend that to you. No, my boss is not giving me any residuals on this. I'm being honest here and saying that it's a great curriculum and I would commend it to anyone. What about you, man? So uh, what I would recommend 
two things. Um, I got a couple of friends and we just been kicking around the idea. Um, how do you know that the Bible is reliable? I've been going back over some resources. One super simple book that I feel like is written at the most layman level. Apologetics is a small book by Josh McDowell um, called More Than a Carpenter. That's a really quick read, um, but it addresses so many different apologetic things at the cursory level, just kind of like giving you an introduction. Do you Christians believe that, that uh, Jesus is who he says he is, that the Bible can be trusted? Um, just some great, a lot of it borrowed from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis's uh, Mere Christianity. I'm going through a commentary on Mark by William Barclay. I'm of the philosophy that you read widely. Um, some of his stuff, um, conservative Christian scholars would probably say he's off here on some of these things, but on the stuff that he's on about, man, he just has really good insight into the scriptures. Um, of course, I wouldn't probably recommend that to a, a brand new believer because you would probably want to start with something where you felt like everything was a little more orthodox and inside of those lines. But um, the insights that he's had into the book of Mark, I love it because he writes at a scholarly level, but he writes in a devotional way that kind of like engages your heart. And that's been really good for me because I felt like that was necessary for me. So that's what I'd recommend this week. William Barclay, he's going with the Scottish guy going across the pond here. Good stuff, man. So, Jay Rich, this is what I do. Whenever I know a pastor's retiring, I just ask him for all their old books because I got no I got no I got no budget for books. So <laughs> pastor says he's retiring. You see the ad. I be like, come on, man. Give up the books, bro. And that so. tip was for free listeners. When y'all see a pastor retiring, ask him for some books because he'll probably give you some. Don't ever ask me for books because I'm never giving you anything. I'm like Charleston Heston and his guns. You'll pry them <laughs> from my cold, dead hands. I'm not giving up any books. Sorry. Closing shout outs. Let's go. My high school family state champions, seventh state championship in our history. Uh, our My coach, legendary coach, 897 wins in the Hall of Fame, retired. His son took over and uh, he got his first state championship last Thursday in Richmond, our state capital. State champs again, family. Shout out to my high school state runners up this year. But in class 6A, mind you, large, large class, um, but came up just short in the championship game, lost to Langston Hughes High School. I can't be mad because it's a high school named after a great poet. So um, shout out to Brunswick High for making it to Athens to play in the championship game at UGA. Great, hey, we're what? back, man. We are back, man. And what we're going to do next go around, you got to stick around and see. But we're definitely going to be talking what Christ, sports, and culture um, through the lens of the cross. What we've been doing for the past several episodes. We appreciate you guys for joining us. Big shout out to the homie Jay Hart, who was with us on part of this journey. Uh, hopefully he's a listener, too. Uh, and we will catch you guys later. Grace and peace to you all. Peace out.